This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. Uh, so this morning, uh, we are continuing a sermon series that we have called uh, Tipping Points. And the premise of this series uh, has been that once we get to Easter, uh, once we get to the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, uh, we are reminded that after his ascension, uh, we are not left alone. But there's a Holy Spirit that comes, an advocate, uh, a comforter, that comes alongside and in that spirit fills us up uh, and, and then pours us out on this world uh, to be an offering for this world. And one of the primary images that we use uh, throughout Scripture of God's presence in the world, a very tangible expression, is, is of water. In fact, at 935 this morning, we baptized uh, Millie Behrman. Uh, and we, when we baptized Millie, we, we were reminded that it was through water, through that uh, tangible sign uh, of uh, inward and spiritual grace. There's a, a physical way that we are reminded and marked uh, by God's Spirit, and often that imagery uh, does come from water. And so we've looked at the early church, and we began walking through the book of Acts and looking at the different stories, where as we are filled up, there's, there are moments in time, there are significant moments uh, where God, uh, where these tipping points, where we really are filled to a place where we can't help but be transformed where our very nature, our very expression can't help but change. And so we, we begin to pour out in new ways, and we begin to share God's love in new ways and share God's truth in new ways. And so we have walked with the early church as we have shared that truth. We've also shared many of our own stories. I know several weeks ago, we had Confirmation Weekend. We had Confirmands share some of their own tipping points and their families that have journeyed with them. We've also heard from our children in different ways that children's leaders have experienced uh, those tipping points. And then last week, uh, we heard from Fiesta Christiana, uh, some members of our, of our community that came and shared some of their own moments uh, of life and their encounter with God in this place as well. Uh, next week, uh, many of our senior uh, high students will be sharing their stories. And so again, I would encourage you, uh, next week is not a week to miss. And so if you're going to come, it's a great chance to come and hear the stories of life transformation that are happening in this place all the time and how important those things are. So this morning, we're simply continuing that. And my, my hope is that as we continue this story, and continue this series, uh, we're coming to a place where we have our own questions. And one of the questions that we ask ourselves after Easter is, what do we do with Easter? You know, what do we do with this message? What do we do with this good news? How do we, uh, as a church, as individuals, as families, uh, carry this from simply stories we tell uh, to be life-transforming words and actions that we share uh, with this world? And so we're beginning to shift from the stories that fill us up to actually the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in this world and how we might be vessels of God's pouring out. And so that's, that's where we're picking up uh, this morning. We're going to be starting actually in Acts uh, chapter 17. Uh, and so if you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open up with me to Acts 17. Uh, we're going to spend uh, the whole time this morning there. And so you can simply leave it open if you have it on your phone or other places. You're welcome to open that up as well. There's a chance for us uh, to just walk through these scriptures and hear this story. And where we are in Acts 17 is we're coming up uh, with Paul. Uh, and as you know, uh, many of you know, uh, with Paul in Acts chapter 9, uh, Paul has an encounter with God. Uh, he is most known in that region at the time as Saul. Uh, he was a persecutor of God's church, of the early Christians. He was trained up in the Jewish tradition. He was actually trained to be a teacher of the law, a Pharisee. And as a teacher of the law, he knew Jewish tradition. And he was part of the group that was rounding up uh, early church Christians dragging them out of their homes, and in some cases actually participating in the stoning, uh, the most famous being of Stephen, uh, of those who were professing faith in Christ uh, out of the Jewish community. And Paul has this encounter with God. 
uh, on the road to Damascus. He has this bright light that comes and blinds him. And then Ananias walks with him. And ultimately, God sets him free, opens his eyes. And he begins this journey. Paul can't help but share the good news across that whole region. I think we've got a map, Don. If you pull that map up. This is actually a map of what's called Paul's second uh, missionary journey. Uh, it it's actually describes many of the places that we see in Acts and we see in uh, Paul's letters. And he begins, you sort of see the star. He begins in Antioch, uh, which is near Syria, part of that region, and then travels across uh, that whole region as he heads towards Greece, uh, which on this map is called Macedonia. It's the Macedonian Peninsula. It's what we know as modern-day Greece. And he traveled into there, and in chapter 16, we come uh, to Berea and Thessalonica. And Paul's been traveling with two of his disciples, a guy named Timothy and a guy named Silas. And they come into Berea and Thessalonica. And when they get there, as they do in many places, they encounter a lot of trouble. Uh, Paul's message was not well received with religious authorities because as he shared Jesus and this new Messiah and the way of the new covenant, uh, it was really beginning to challenge the authority structures in that space. When you say there's a new king that's coming, people who are in authority don't like that. And so they begin to press on them and oppress them and begin to push them out of those spaces. And so we pick up the story in chapter 17. We're picking it up as Paul has left Berea and Thessalonica, has moved down to Athens, which is that southern part of Greece. And he's in Athens waiting uh, for Silas and Timothy to catch up to him. And so he's praying and waiting for them to come alongside in Athens. So we pick up the story in Acts chapter 17, uh, beginning with verse 16. Hear this word from Acts. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he argued in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. And some says, some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others, says, he seem, others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. We'll pause right there. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there's several things that I want us to notice as we see a sort of Paul walking into Athens and what's going on in Athens and what's happening in that region. I think it's helpful for us, again, as we ask the question, what do we do? You know, we're not Paul, we're not Philip, we're not Peter. So, so what is our task? How do we respond to the gospel? And I think we can learn a lot from Paul and Paul's encounter and interaction in that place as we ourselves ask what we're supposed to do uh, with this good news, with resurrection, you know, with Easter. And so this is what's happening in Athens. And I want a, a couple of verses that stick out to me. Uh, one is verse 17. 17 and 18 describe the audience that, that Paul is dealing with when he comes into Athens. Verse 17, it says, So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul is in Athens. Athens, as you remember from the map, is sort of this crossroads of trade in the region. He's encountering lots of different people. He's encountering Jewish uh, leaders, Jewish people who are devout in their faith, who know the scriptures, who know the traditions, who probably have been raised up in the traditions and are prepared to have this conversation from a place of Jewish tradition, Jewish history. He's also dealing with a lot of people who are simply in that region because it's a region of trade. 
So they're there for economic reasons. They're just there to make some money, to build a relationship, to, to bring their goods in, trade those things with each other, and then leave to go back to their communities and, and spend that money or those, those things in different ways. And so he's seeing these different audiences. The other folks he's seeing are in verse 18. This is also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? And others says he seems to be reclaiming a foreign, a foreign divinities. Uh, who, who studied philosophy? Anybody say philosophy? That's good. Okay, nobody studied philosophy. This makes it really easy for me. So um, Epicureans and Stoics were actually the two competing uh, Hellenistic philosophies of the time. So they were their most predominant philosophies in Greece at the time. Uh, they, and they really presented two distinct ideas. Uh, now, they, there was a lot of nuance to this. And if you go like look up Epicureans and Stoicism later, you'll see there's a lot more nuance to it. But the broad strokes of those two philosophies was Stoicism was really the commitment to reason. It was all about rationality. Stoics felt like emotion got in the way of reason. Now, if you have ever raised a 13-year-old daughter, you might, be, you might feel like that's different, right? So you know that. Emotion and reason don't go together, right? I've got an eight-year-old. I know that's coming. And they, they said, if we can just depress our emotion, if we can set aside the emotional side of who we are, the things that bubble up in us and, and, and sort of push that over here, then we can make good decisions based on rationality and reason. We can make reasonable expressions. We can make choices that reflect that reason. And that really is the entire, I mean, again, there's lots of nuance to it, but it's founded in that sort of rational base of understanding and thinking. Epicureans, by contrast, their foundational ethic was found in pleasure. They believed that decisions could be made based on what brings us the most pleasure. Now, when Epicureanism is sort of pushed to its logical end, some take it to hedonism, but in its time, it wasn't that. In its time, it was actually, uh, this again, a nuanced balance between what do we do to use and enjoy the material world. It was a very materialistic philosophy. So they uh, ate well, and that's really where we use that language today. So if you talk about an Epicurean today, it's usually people with a refined palate that love to eat. And so uh, that, that is the, the, na- the way we use it. But it's they ate lots of food, they ate lots, lots of rich food. Uh, they used material for their own pleasure and for their own gain. And so this is the place that Paul is sitting with re- religious devout, with people who are there for business reasons only, for people who are there that believe rationality and reason is the only way to make good decisions, for people that are there that are just pursuing their own pleasure. As I read this, I began to reflect on what this means for us. In many ways, I don't think that we're all that different than Athens. I don't think that our culture is much different than Athens. I think we sit in a very similar place. I think about my neighbors and the people that I'm in community with, and I look around and I realize that particularly in the Southeast, over the last 30 years or so, our landscape has started to change. For the first time, people have moved into this area who didn't grow up in church, who didn't grow up with a church background, who didn't know these stories. And and I'm in a relationship now with, with lots of people who don't know the foundational stories that I just assumed to be true because I was taught them when I was a kid. And they've grown up without knowing these things. They've only been in church really for weddings and for funerals. And it's honestly more likely they were there for a funeral than for a wedding. Because many weddings aren't even happening in churches the same way anymore. 
And so many of our neighbors don't know this stuff. They didn't grow up with this stuff. And like Paul, we are sitting in an audience now of people who had grew up around religious stories, who knew scripture, who knew truth, who knew these things, and people who, who really are there because this is a great place to live, a great place to raise a family, and you can get good jobs here. And that's why they're here. We're also sitting with lots of people who are trying to figure out what their rationale for life is, how you make good decisions. Do you make them with pure reason? Do you set aside emotion? And then everything in between, is it really just about pursuing pleasure? And so I think a lot of our audience, if we think about what our task is as believers, what it means to be in this community in which we serve and live and work and play, we are in a place, I think, very similar uh, to Athens. The last line of that passage is verse 21. And it was almost one of those lines that you can skip right through really quickly if you're not careful. It says this, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. The culture there, particularly in a place where lots of thought was bubbling up, is they would gather at the Areopagus and they would just debate ideas. They'd love to debate ideas. And they would just bring new ideas in and new thoughts in and new processes in. And they would just talk about them and talk about them. And they would gather up as much information as they could. And, and it just became the culture there. And again, as I thought about our own culture, a, a lot of us are experiencing something very similar. You know, we are in an information age. And we're sort of coming out of what has formerly been called that. But we are in a place where uh, information is readily at our fingertips. Sometimes that information is from news sources. And the 24-hour news cycle has reinforced to that to have to constantly produce new news and new things and new, uh, new ideas. Uh, for some of us, that, that comes from, you know, we, whether it's sports or news or other things. I mean, I, I know many people, I've done this myself, that, you know, I'll, I'll go on ESPN like an hour later, and I'm like, why has nothing changed? Like, I want to know something new, right? Or we get it on social media. We go to Facebook or we go to Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter or somewhere else and we try to find information. We want to know what's happening that's new in this world, and we're, we're constantly seeking it. In fact, psychologists are finding that uh, the way that uh, operating systems are de- designed for smartphones, it has created an almost addiction that they're feeding to new information. Like we'll go check our emails and you pull it down and the little thing spins and then it pops back up and you're like, oh, a new email. Like, you know, and you, like, there's almost an addiction to that need for new information. And so it's just like a slot machine, right? You just pull it down and you let it go. You hope something good happens. And they found that we actually have become addicted to that cycle of information, of, of needing new information. And so we go back over and over again to these sources and try to find this information. We also are in a place where often we're seeking, or our neighbors are, our coworkers are, our kids are, are seeking places where we just want to find out the next new thing. And so again, I feel like we're in a place very similar to where Paul was, very different, but very similar to where Paul was uh, in Athens. So what do, what do we do with that? So what do we do if we, if we believe that to be true, if we believe we're in a place not unlike ancient Greece, just with different technology, different ways, how do we respond as people trusted with the gospel? So we're going to jump into verse 22. It says, So Paul then stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. There were altars again all over the city. I've got a picture. You can pull that one up, Donna. This is actually uh, an altar that was found uh, actually in Rome. It was on Palatine Hill. This is in a museum in Rome. And the inscription on this uh, said, 
Sidea, uh, which is to a god or goddess, to an unknown god or unknown goddess. There was no name on it. And this is the, the type of altar that he would have found in Greece at the time that would have been a, a, an altar to an unknown god. What I, what I love about what Paul did is Paul looked around, and rather than saying, like condemning everything they did, because again, you remember in verse 16, you know, Paul was waiting for them in Athens, and he was deeply distressed by all the idols there. You know, this is ancient Greece, and so they have idols. They have statues for Zeus and for Athena and for all these uh, Greek gods and goddesses in that place. He looked around, and he was super distressed. He was like, this is not okay. But rather than condemn what they have, he looks around, and he sees it, and he says, you know what? There's something about this people that is common in all of us. There's something about them that longs for something more. There's something about them that wants to know more of God. And so they have these altars that are to an unknown God. They, they still want, they still long for, they still seek, but have no way to name. And he uses that to invite them into this story. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so they would search for God, and perhaps grope for him or long for him, and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. And since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he was fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by rising him, raising him from the dead. So Paul looks out and he says, I know there's things that you long for. I know there's things you believe. Even your own poets talk about being offsprings of this God. And yet you don't know, you don't have a language, you don't have a way to understand it. But I know a God who actually claims you that way. And if we're to be offspring, if we're to be children, if we're going to be claimed as God's family, then that God can't be made of gold or silver or stone. That God has to be real, and this is what that God looks like. And he began to describe what happened at Easter, began to describe what happened in Jesus' life, and began to talk about that. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I know for me, one of the things I keep finding again, over and over again, is that when I encounter people, either those who are Christ followers or those uh, who are not yet Christ followers, who maybe even reject the faith, I find lots of things that they have in common. And they're not all that different than what Paul described there's a sociologist who actually named it this way, and this has been probably the most helpful for me. Donald, do you have those three? He called it that all people, regardless of faith, all need these three things. They seek identity, they seek belonging, and they seek purpose. All of us are seeking identity, we're seeking belonging, and we're seeking purpose. And again, I found this in my neighbors, those that even you know, won't be here. They, they all want to know, who am I? We all want to know who we are. And we define that different ways with our identity. We define it, you know, perhaps who our parents are. We define it, uh, perhaps, you know, in the jobs that we do. We define it, uh, perhaps, in, in the neighborhoods we live in or the communities that we're a part of or the, the sports teams we pull for. Uh, but we all are seeking to be identified with something. 
with someone. When we baptized Millie this morning, uh, we reminded her family, we reminded her, and we'll, again, she was an infant, she will have to remind her over and over again. That's part of our promise to her. But when we baptize children, the thing that we baptize and remind them is that their primary identity uh, is not as the child of, in this case, Megan and Michael, but their primary identity is rooted that they are a child of God. Our primary identity, the thing that defines us above and beyond everything else is that we are children of God. We are offsprings of God. And when we remember that, it then begins to change how we relate to this world. The same thing is true of belonging. Again, many of us seek belonging lots of places. Many of our neighbors, many of our coworkers are looking to belong to something. We, we like to join things. And so we become alongside. We, we want to belong and and so we join country clubs, we join sports leagues, we, we join alumni associations, we, we, like to, we join social media groups. We, we want to be part of something. Again, that's, that's part of what we were created for. We were created to be in relationship. But when we seek belonging, the, the place that we find belonging, and you'll hear me say it again this morning as I offer benediction, we find belonging primarily because we are part of God's family. The first and foremost place that we can find that place to belong is as God's children, and therefore we are part of God's family. The reason we gather for worship is not just so y'all can come here and hear me preach on Sunday mornings. Um, that would be problematic. You guys wouldn't come back. Uh, but we would come because we gather as God's people. We gather to be God's people. We gather to be with one another. That's why your spiritual relationship with God isn't something we simply do at home, by ourselves. Now that's possible, and that's part of it. We have to gather and be part of this because without each other, we are incomplete. We belong to something greater than ourselves. We encourage one another. We shape each other. We form each other. We greet one another. It's why we stand and greet each other. It's not just to get you up off your feet first thing in the morning, but it's also to stand and to greet one another. And I hope you greet each other by name and introduce yourselves and, and welcome people you don't know and, and apologize if you need to. And I mean, I've done this lots of times. Say, I know I probably know you, but could you remind me your name? And, and people will tell you. It's amazing what, what people will say if you just ask. But part of that is that we might know each other. We might worship beside people that we are known and that we know and we're known by. Because that way we begin to belong to something and belong to a community that walks alongside of us. That's what we are created for. And the last one is purpose. We as Christ's people, we as God's family, have a purpose in this world. And our purpose is to bring about a world and a community that reflects God's kingdom, not just for the world to come, but in this world. That's why we come alongside school systems. That's why we come alongside crisis ministries. It's why we find children's ministry and other things to, to reflect what it means to feed the poor, to clothe the naked, to, uh, to, to make sure we are being a people that, that provides housing for those without. That's what we do. It's why we, we intentionally are working to, to become more diverse in our expression of of age and race and language so that we might better reflect God's kingdom on this world. That's, that's what we do. And I, and I found in my neighbors that my neighbors get this regardless of if they believe in God. They know that we were created to make a difference in this world. They, they all want to make a difference. And we just say this is what making a difference looks like you know, as Christ followers. And so this is my challenge this morning. One, I would just ask you, you know, who, who are your neighbors? Who are your coworkers? Who are your friends? And, and who, how are they defining these things? How are they defining identity? How are they f- defining belonging? How are they defining purpose? 
And how might you reflect in your own life and your speech and the things that you share, an identity and a belonging and a purpose that reflects God's call on our lives? How might you be a people who share that with the way you live, share that with the way you talk, share that with the choices that you make? So people might be drawn to that, really completing a picture of what they already know, what they already long for. The second, and this is, I think, is important for us. I'm going to share this online this week as well. I shared it with our staff earlier. But this starts with us. For us to be a people who invite people to know the gospel, to know what we believe to be true, we ourselves have to be transformed by this. We can't, you know, sometimes we, we fake it until we make it, and maybe that's part of this. But we have to, to, to call ourselves into a new way of being. And so I want to share with you all this morning, we're going to close with this. This is actually 22 questions uh, that John Wesley uh, used. It's, it's Wesley's self-examination questions. And he uh, group, gathered a group of people. There was just a small group of guys uh, when he was in, at Oxford, and it was called the, the Holy Club, uh, which I find really ironic when you read the first question, but we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> uh, but it's a group of people who wanted to be holy, who wanted to look like Jesus. They wanted to gather and be changed, and this became part of his practice. And every morning when he got up, he would actually read these 22 questions. He'd journal his answers. And he, he got to a place where they became so convicting, he journaled them in code, because if someone found it, he didn't want to like them to see all of his bad stuff, right? But I'm going to read them to you, and again, I'm going to share it later this week. But I, I just want you to let this think. I'm, I'm introduce, reintroducing this again. I had our staff do it on Wednesday as part of our staff devotion. We had a day apart to, to reinvest in our staff team. Uh, but this is a chance, I think, to just reflect on where you are and where, where you are with God, where you are in your relationship with God. And this is what he asked. He says, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I honest in all my acts and words, or do I exaggerate? Do I confidentially pass on to another what was told to me in confidence? Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress or friends or work or habits? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Did the Bible live in me today? Do I give it time to speak to me every day? Am I enjoying prayer? When did I last speak to someone else about my faith? Do I pray about the money that I spend? Do I go to bed on time and get up on time? Do I disobey God in anything? Do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Am I defeated in any part of my life? Am I jealous and pure? critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? How do I spend my spare time? Am I proud? Do I thank God that I am not like other people? Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, criticize, hold a resentment toward or disregard? Do I grumble or complain constantly? Is Christ real to me? I know when I first did this, I was like, ouch, <laughs> like, this, this is convicting. And I think that part of our task is to be a people who examine ourselves honestly and, and ask ourselves, are we moving on to look more and more like Christ? Are we moving on to be a people who reflect Christ in this world in such a way that when people see us, they actually do see Jesus? And they see a people they want to walk alongside. They see people they want to know more about. They, they want to seek identity and belonging and purpose the way that we have found identity, belonging, and purpose in the truth of God the family of God. So that's my challenge this week. Again, we're going to share this in the app. We're going to put it online uh, this week. So if, 
You also can just look it up. If you look at John Wesley's self-examination questions, uh, if you want to start this afternoon, if you're like, yay, I'm going to do that so much, I'm going to do it today. That was not my response, just so you know. <laughs> but I'm reintroducing this as part of my daily practices and, and letting Scripture be part of that. But I would just encourage you, find a way. Find a way to ask yourselves, where is God leading me? Where is God filling me up and pouring me out so that I might be an offering for this world? And how might I reflect more purely, more, more like what Christ calls me to be so that I might be that outpouring for this world? I'm going to pray for us, and then Corey and the team is going to lead us in a closing song. Almighty God, we do give you thanks. We thank you for the way that you invite us. We thank you for the way that you create in us a longing to know you, whether we can name you or not, a longing to, to seek you, a longing to be known by you. We thank you that you call us something more and greater than ourselves. And Lord, this morning we do ask that you would challenge us, that you would draw us back to you so that we might more reflect the body, the family, the people that you call us to become. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.